Good morning. All right, we're in First Peter, if you'd like to go ahead and turn there. Last week, uh, a question came up, kind of a question, uh, that I wasn't able to answer at the time, and it had to do with the whole idea of election and kind of reconciling election with, with what God expects man to do and what God does and what man's supposed to do and everything involved in all of that, and then even the idea that we're elected uh, to go to heaven. Um, I don't have a complete answer for that today. But I do have the beginning of an answer that I'm thinking about doing maybe a mini-series on in the future. But at the, the beginning of the answer to that whole question, the whole issue, a lot of questions that we all bring up, the answer to them is what I have here on the screen. God's glory. God's glory, folks. A lot of times we can come up with questions, and if we'll just have a little card in our pocket that says, Try God's glory, all right? We'll get the answer to a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Uh, God's glory, if we really understand it, is um, it's kind of like a foundational conviction. If we have that, then a lot of the other ones, if you will, kind of fall into place. Uh, God's glory. Uh, let me read to you. We're going to do just a short one on this. Let me read to you from Isaiah. where God talks about his glory. It's Isaiah chapter 48. I'm going to begin in verse 9. Listen to what God says. For the sake of my name. I get that. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. This is God speaking. For my own sake. He repeats himself. I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. That's what God says about his glory. Also, when we look in the Bible, we see um, God created God created everything for his glory. Think about that. The whole creation, everything, was created for God's glory. He did not create creation. He did not create everything because he said, I want to do it a favor. It wasn't for me. This creation is not here for me. That means this life is not here for me. This earth is not here for me. What goes on is not for me. It's for God, and it's for his glory. Colossians 1.15. Let me read that to you, if I could, please. 1.16. Colossians 1.16. For by him, that's God, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, 
all things have been created through him and for him. All creation exists for God. All creation exists for God's glory. Psalm 19.1 begins this way. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. If you look out at God's creation, the heavens, the earth, and everything, the heavens, you look at that, and all of that was created to give God glory. Man, we exist to give God glory. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. I was reminded as I read that this morning, is that my life? When I say something or do something, do I stop and say, is this going to glorify God? Because that's what we're here for. That's what we were created for. You know, Christ in his life on this earth has everything to do with glorifying God. Uh, Let me read to you from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. When you go through the Gospels, one of the things you're going to see over and over again is Christ lived his life on this earth to glorify his Father. That's what his purpose was. So what do you think ours is? He goes on in verse, um, let me see. Verse 4. Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God talks about his glory. Man is for his glory. Creation is for his glory. Christ lived his life on this earth for God's glory. What do you think is central in the Bible? It's God's glory ought to be central in our lives. And I will tell you something. A lot of questions that you have in your lives or in the Bible, if you'll just stop and think, what does this do about God's glory? You're going to get some answers. You know what? God is God. This and this, this sometimes may be hard for us to, to really grasp because you'll notice on the screen, I have God's glory in big letters. And down here in these little tiny letters, can you read it? No. It says man. Man. Man compared to God's glory. We are so small when it comes to God's glory. God does not have to tell his creation, his creature, how or why he does anything. God does not owe it to me to explain to me why he does what he does or how. He does what he does. God does not have to explain to me why he chose me for salvation or anyone else. God does not have to answer to me why he may not have chosen someone to salvation. God does not answer to us. And if we could really get that down to who God is and everything is done for his glory, because 
everything that is done is for God's glory. We're going to see that in 1 Peter today as, as we get towards the end of it. Because we're talking about persecution of Christians. And you know what? Peter relates to us the fact that even that is for God's glory. Even that is for God's glory. All right, let's go on to our lesson in First Peter here. First of all, I told you I wanted to find a map that overlaid Pastor Farrell's teaching of the seven churches in Revelation to, to Peter's letter that gets circulated. And you can see on the map here, um, Peter's letter goes from Asia and Bithynia and Galatia and Cappadocia over that large area. All right, now Peter's letter is going to be circulated through churches through that area, but the uh, letter from, from John to the seven churches, you can see that's more centralized in, in Asia that way. I just kind of look at that as a reminder that those churches in Asia more than likely received the same letter from, from Peter, from First Peter, and that would have been before uh, John's letter to the churches. You know, there's, there's one way, at least one way, where our society and culture are like the same society and culture that Peter's readers faced. All right? How is today just like them, if you will? Christians and the church are being attacked from all areas, from all directions, from all ways. It was no different in Peter's time as it is in our time. You know, the opponents of God have infiltrated and control. When you think about this, they control the major economic, educational, and social institutions of society. But they did back in Peter's day too. Nothing new under the sun. The world has opposed Christianity since the birth of Jesus. And should we expect it to be any different today? The, the Bible, I think, makes it clear that we ought to expect it. The question is, how do we respond to it? It's going to be here. It's going to happen. We're going to be exposed to it. We're going to know people who are exposed to it. Ashton, we know missionaries who are exposed to it. All right? It's going to happen. But how do we respond to it? Peter is writing a letter teaching us how to respond to it. He's teaching us the answer to the question. And he's teaching that in the first epistle. Now, Peter, uh, Peter begins talking about our sure salvation. If you look in, in chapter 1 there, he talks about our sure salvation because we are chosen in verse 1 of chapter 1. And then he talks about how great the salvation is that leads to heaven. He also talks to us as obedient children in verse 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts of the world. He also talks to us about our privileges we have as obedient children. And if you remember, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about the privilege of union with Christ, the privilege of access to God, the privilege of security in Christ, the privilege of eternal heaven, the privilege of election by Christ, the privilege of being a royal priesthood. And as we're going to see in today's lesson, which and the rest of the letter, Peter does not focus on what we do about those who persecute us. He did not focus in his letter talking to them about what they're supposed to do about the people who persecuted them. 
but he talks about how they are to live their lives in the face of persecution. And now he's going to get into a, a segment which I call the godly living among unbelievers. Godly living among unbelievers. You see, the privileges that we talked about are not just privileges for our benefit. They, they are so that we may proclaim the excellencies. Uh, back, uh, remember last week, look at chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, great privileges. So that what? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember Hebrews talked about a great crowd of witnesses. Now those witnesses were actually saints who went before that are actually witnesses to us about saintly living, if you will. Those who have set an example for us. I'm going to tell you something. There's another great crowd of witnesses in this world. It's a great crowd of witnesses who are observing you and I. It's that great crowd of witnesses that are unbelievers. And you know what? They're watching. And they're observing. Peter refers to them in our verses today in 11 and 12. He refers to them as Gentiles. In verse 15, he refers to them as foolish men. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he refers to those who are disobedient to the word. In chapter 3, verse 14, he talks about these people are the ones who intimidate. In chapter 3, verse 15, they are the ones who ask for an account of the hope that's in you. In chapter 4, verse 4, they are surprised that you do not join in their sins. In verse, in chapter 4, verse 14, they're the ones who revile your good behavior. You see, the privilege that we talked about in the past couple of weeks are ours to help us live in a world of sin. They help us live in a world that's under control of the prince of the power of the air, in a world where we experience difficulties and temptations, temptations to sin on a daily basis. That the principles, the privileges are given to help, not just get through times of persecution, but to be a witness, to be a witness to what God can do during those times. The 19th century Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren, and I'm not going to say this the way he would say it, because I'm not good at that, but basically he said, the world takes its notions of God most of all, from the people, they say that they belong to God's family. You said it right, Alexander McLaren. Okay, thank you. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. But what is he saying? People are watching us. People look at us. And you know what? When you say, I'm a believer in Christ, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of God, people are looking and saying, okay, I want to see what a follower of God is like. What are they really like? You know, if you seriously, if you seriously follow Jesus Christ, 
ye will be obedient to what he says on the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where he said, your light must shine, or let your light so shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see what this says? They see your good works and they glorify your Father. Well, how can they glorify God just by watching your good works? Just by watching you. Because some of the things you do are some of the things they do. You know, good things or whatever. But how? The only way they're going to glorify God is to know that the reason you are doing what you do is because of your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that apply to your uh, what you do in the face of Christians' duty in the face of evil? Would that apply to a Christian's yeah, duty in the face of? We're being watched as Christians. If we ignore evil, they said, well, we accept that just like anybody else. Well, okay. One of the things Peter's talking about here is you guys are facing evil. He's going to talk about evildoers. He's going to talk about. They call us evildoers, and they're the evildoers. Let's see what Peter says when you're faced with that. Let's see what he says. You know, we're being observed day to day, folks, day by day, unbelievers, to see how a professing believer lives. They want to see how a professing believer lives. And yes, Gene, part of it is when those professing believers out there are experiencing evil, how do they respond to it? With what do they do? With evil, they respond back with that's what they that's what they're looking to see what happens. That's what they're looking to see what happens. Peter doesn't say respond with evil. Let's see what Peter says uh, throughout his epistle on how he responds. Perhaps you and I are managing the circumstances of our life just like other people. Or do people see us managing our lives different than what they are maybe? You know, it's when you go through the crucible of persecution. When you go through that, when you're being hated, when you're mistreated, when you're maligned, and that, that crucible results in your praise to the Lord, they want to know how you do it. They want to know how you do it. When you act like them, they don't have to wonder how you do it. I know how you do that. I know why you say that. I know why you do that. Okay. But when you're exposed to the persecution and it results in praise to the Lord, they go, how in the world are you doing that? How can you have hope when there is nothing but hopelessness? You know what? That is one of the most wonderful and best openings to share the gospel for people to get saved. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 14, if you would, please. Uh, In a few months, we'll get to this again in more detail, but look at this just very quickly. Verse 14 of chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Get that. You're suffering for the sake of righteousness. You are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But what are you to do? 
sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Do you get what he's saying there? Okay, you're going through a difficult time. You're suffering for the sake of righteousness. You are being persecuted. All right, you're being persecuted. But guess what? You show hope. You respond in a Christ-like way. And you know what they say? Explain it to me. When he says, give a defense of the hope that is in you, it's give an explanation of the hope that is in you. How can you do this? You're going through these medical problems, but yet you say, I'm praising God. How can you do that? This is what unbelievers say. This is what, this is what grabs their attention, folks. Not that you live like them, not that you talk like them, but you're different than them because you have something they don't have and you have a life you can live that they cannot live. As living stones, we have a living testimony to the world, a testimony of living on the outside of what we have on the inside. And throughout this epistle, Peter exhorts his readers to live godly lives. And that's where we're heading. Live a godly life. Now, will someone's observation of your godly life by itself save them? They just see how you live. Is that going to save them? Just watching you. No, it's not, is it? It's not. Because it's the gospel that saves. But if the life you live gets an interest in them to talk to you about how you live that life, then what do you get to share? The gospel that saves. I thought they've already been picked up before. That's what I thought. What's that? I'm confused because... On one hand, you say that, that those Christians have already, those people who are going to be saved have already been picked out. But yet, you're saying, on the other hand, you want this person to come to Christ. Yes. I'm, I'm confused. That's why I want to do a mini-series in the future. Okay? Because you got a great question. No, that, no, that's all right. That's all right. But i got to save it for the future because I can't do it in a minute. I can't even do it on one Sunday morning. All right? But I'm going to tell you, when I do it, I'm going to start with what? God's glory. I'm going to start with God's glory. So my answer to your question eventually is going to be the way God does it gives him the greatest glory. Now, that gives you something to think of for the next 16, 18 weeks. Okay? All right. Um, John MacArthur writes, Godly lives are the single most effective foundation for making the gospel attractive and believable. And believable. In Matthew 5, 16, I say, walk the talk and talk the walk. Walk the talk. Let your life be on the outside, which you say it is. But make sure when you take that walk, people understand because you talk to them how you're able to do it. Now, Peter begins with a general description of godly living, which we're going to look at today. And he's going to follow that with godly living in the most common areas of life. This is going to be for the future. He's going to talk about how we relate to governmental authority. He's going to talk about how we relate to workplace 
authority. And he's going to talk about godly living in the home. Now, if there's a place where people can observe what goes on in your lives, it's your home life, your work life, and then what you do as far as the authorities around you. But spiritual success in those areas begins with godly living among unbelievers in a general sense, which he's going to look at, what we're going to look at this morning. And they're going to be this way. Peter's going to talk about in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. First of all, abstain from fleshly lusts. That's Paul's put off. And then exhibit excellent behavior. That's Paul's put on, if you will. What not to do and what we should do. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter takes us right there. It's an admonition. It's a command. The main idea, abstain from fleshly lusts in verse 11. Now, he begins with the reminder of you. Notice he's talking about you. He says, I urge you. I urge you. So he's talking to believers, all right? But believers who are what? They're beloved. He's reminding his readers that they are loved of God, all right? You're you're loved of God. God loves you. God loves you. They've been chosen as a people for God for him to set his love on them. That's all the part of being chosen. We're chosen for God to put his love on us. And he demonstrated that love how? How did God demonstrate his love toward us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. And it's because of that love that he's already talked about, that they've been born again, they've been made living stones, They've been able to love one another. Peter would not give an admonition like this to those that are not beloved. Now, the beloved are foreigners and strangers in one version, aliens and strangers, if you will. He refers to them as that. The idea of foreigners or aliens, if you will, are people who live in a country that is not their own. Yeah, putting it towards them, he's not talking about their country. He's talking about they live in a world that is not their own. We don't belong to this world system. We don't belong to it. God has taken us symbolically and spiritually out of the system. But you know what? We live along people, alongside people who do live in this world system. And you know what? It's their system. It's their world so to speak. Our world is there. It's not here. This is not ours. It's all those unbelievers have. They'll never have anything better than this. We will always have something better than this. It's their world. So that's an, that's an alien or, or foreign or stranger. It's really a synonym for aliens, but it means more a visitor or a pilgrim who's traveling through on a brief stay. 
Folks, we are, we are strangers. We are pilgrims. This is a brief stay for us. Now, it's been a pretty long stay for Ashton, okay? But compared to all eternity, Ashton, brief stay, a brief one. He says, I urge you, which means he encourages or he really beseeches. It's almost like, like begging, like I really want you to do this. I urge you to what? Abstain from fleshly lust. Abstain from fleshly lust. Believers, we have been born again to a new life. We've been regenerated. We've been given a new heart. We have a new disposition with righteous desires, yet we still have to deal with the old flesh. Now, you guys may not be as familiar with that as I am, but it's something I have to deal with every single day. Peter's going to talk about this a couple of times more. Uh, He already has. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Chapter 4, verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There is an ongoing battle between the new spirit, the new you, and the old flesh. Uh, Pastor Farrell has talked a lot about this already in, in, in Romans. And you know what? It's a battle that does not stop until we shed ourselves of this body and we get a new one. We're always going to have this. And why? It's not a war we're looking for. But don't forget what he says here. It wars against us. He doesn't say we war against it. He doesn't say we war against the flesh. The flesh wars against us. We have a life here that's got many battles. And and the word abstain indicates that with a new life and the power of the Holy Spirit... We can restrain or we can win the battle against the lustful flesh. Lustful flesh are not limited to sexual immorality, but it's more like a phrase for the evils of our sinful nature. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's not a complete list, all right? You can add in a lot more there, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These fleshly lusts are desires. It's desires that we have on the inside. They are what the flesh wants. 
They are what the flesh craves. They are what the flesh must have. And these desires alone are sinful. And the deeds of the flesh are the result of the flesh getting what it desires. These desires are contrary to the word of God, contrary to righteous living, contrary to living a godly life that glorifies God. These fleshly desires wage an ongoing, relentless, long-term military campaign against the new heart, the new creation. Basically, you know what? The flesh wants to keep on doing what it did before you got saved. That's a good way to look at it. What you did before you got saved, that's in your flesh. It wants to keep on doing that. I mean, stop to think about it. I've known people, Christians, that every once in a while they'll be talking or something will happen and there will be an unbiblical, sinful word come out of their mouth. Where did that come from? It came from what they were before. And that's something that they're still battling, if you will. This war that's talked about here is waged in the soul. It's waged in the innermost being. It's waged in the, the residing place of God's word in us. It's, it's waged in the communication central of the Holy Spirit in us. And you know what? Paul talked about this. What we go through in our lives, I'll say, what I go through in my life, all right? Paul talked about that in Romans. And let me read that to you. Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 14. Uh, Pastor Pharaoh, when he gets out of the seven churches, will be getting back into this right about here. So he'll be a good reminder. Listen to what Paul writes. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Peter's saying, abstain from the fleshly lust. Their war against you, you need to fight back against them. You know, before conversion, 
the fleshly lust that he talks about, they dominated us. They ruled us. They ruled our lives. Before you got saved, your life was usually uh, decided upon what you wanted, what you desired, what you lusted after. But we died to those lusts, if you will. We became able to defeat them through the power of the Holy Spirit with the word of God as we exercise spiritual disciplines. The battle is won or lost in the soul. You see, you can't just do things on the outside to win the battle on the inside. It's not outside in, it's the opposite. It's the inside out. What did James say in 114? But each one is templed when? Do you remember? When he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. He didn't say by the devil. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by the devil. Didn't say that. It's not Satan. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, that which the world provides. Does anybody besides yourself know of the battles that you have against fleshly lusts? Well, only the Lord knows the heart. And unless you share some of those, you're the only one who knows them. So what do people really know about you? If they don't know what's going on in the inside, they don't know the battle going on in the inside that, that you have and that I have, then what do they know about you? Ashton. One great difference, and the biggest difference, is they do not have what we have. That's right. They do not have the Holy Spirit. That's right. In them. That's right. Not at all. No degree of Holy Spirit in them. But we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And we are... Uh, immediately uh, warned by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. No, don't do that. No. Oh, yeah, we have the big advantage. And it's the only way we could be not like them. Amen. That's right. Because so, you rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So if they don't know what's going on inside of you, what do they know about you? What is on the outside, what they see. What they see and what they hear. That's what they know about you what they see, and what they hear. And do they see deeds of the flesh or deeds of righteousness? You see, the battles that we have in this, the soul and what we win or lose is reflected and revealed by our outward behavior, what they see. And Peter urges us to abstain from fleshly lusts and keep that war going against those fleshly lusts so that we can what? Look at verse 12. You need to put a sign on the right side of that door. Uh, you sound like my wife. <laughs> yeah. So that, verse 12. We can keep our behavior. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. If we are going to evangelize, if people are going to be attracted to hearing the gospel by our lives, our inner lives must be visible to the outside world in our daily behavior. In other words, we need to be winning those battles, and then our outside behavior, our daily behavior, should show that. Uh, Peter says, keep. He says, keep your behavior. It's the idea of daily conduct. It's the idea of your lifestyle, folks. Your lifestyle. It's how you live your lives. When people see you day to day to day to day, all right? It's how are you most of the time. He says keep it excellent. Uh, That word means a whole lot. It means lovely, means fine, gracious, noble, fair to look at, visible goodness, beyond reproach. It's not necessarily perfection. It's not that. But it's how do they see your life as they observe it over a period of time? What kind of pattern do they see in your life? Yeah. Yes. I know we, you know, you're talking about what others see in us, but it's so frustrating now in the world today where it's publicized all over the place. Most people feel that Christians now are uneducated, crazy, you know, because we are so different. And, you know, we get classified as really a lot of things that do. Oh, you're right. You're right. In Peter's day, do you know how the unbelievers looked at Christians? You know what they said about them? They said they were rebellious against the government because they didn't understand them. They, you know what? They also said that they practiced cannibalism. They said the Christians practiced cannibalism. Here is the body of Christ, and we're eating it. They practiced cannibalism. They practiced incest. That's what they believed. They believed that they were involved in subversive activities. They believed they were atheists. These Christians, these so-called Christians, they're atheists. Why? Because they don't worship Caesar. So that, it's, it's not a whole lot different today, Doris, than, than it was then. You're, you're right about that. He says Gentiles, that's nations, the unsaved world, those not in the category of the beloved. Keep your, your behavior excellent among the unsaved. Why? Why are we to do it? Here's the reason. It's at the end of the verse. As they observe them, glorify God. In the day of visitation. Glorify God. That's what it's all about. They give God glory. They praise him. When they observe this behavior among Christians. The godly behavior. All right. But how can they glorify God? Do unbelievers glorify God? How do they do that? Peter says it's going to happen. They get saved. That's what Peter's talking about here. They get saved. Uh, When he says here, uh, glorify God in the day of visitation, visitation refers to a time of blessing, a a time of redemption. 
And this is not just your friendly, good neighbor that you have barbecues with and your children go to school with them and they play together and you enjoy certain sports with them. That's not the kind of uh, Gentiles you're talking about here. Because he says here, in the thing in which they slander you. These are people who are slandering you. They're treating you evil, but yet they're calling you an evildoer. But when they slander you, you respond with good deeds. Because in your soul you have defeated the lust of the flesh for responding in kind. You've defeated that part of the flesh that wants to slander back at them. That wants to be angry against them. That wants to be hostile to them. That wants to create factions, create strife. But you respond with good deeds. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Forgive them. Return good for evil. And as they observe them, as they observe them, because of what they see on the outside, what they experience from others who meant it for evil, guess what? God meant it for good. Because of their outward behavior, a Christian, uh, of a Christian spirit-controlled life, not letting the old flesh dictate our response. The real evildoers observe it, and it's going to result in glory and praise to God when God visits them with salvation. The short of it, right here, what Peter's saying, God will receive glory even from your persecution. Even from your persecution. And what's on the outside is a direct reflection of what's on the inside. Uh, close. Look at First Peter chapter 3. Verse 14. A good reminder. A good summing up. You ready for this? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Wow. You are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Okay, any questions or comments on this? You got another hour? In the future, yes, okay? Okay. if you got a lot of questions on this, Gene, what you ought to do, if you would please, is, is kind of write them down. So there'll be, be a time when I, I can put all the questions together and answer it instead. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's pray. Most wonderful and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for the admonition that we see Peter given to these persecuted Christians and in the, these countries, Heavenly Father, in these churches. 
Lord God, there's persecution going on in this world today against Christians. I, first of all, want to pray for them, Heavenly Father. Lord, as they fight the battle, first of all on the inside, and then, and then loving their enemies on the outside, Heavenly Father. Uh, wherever they may be, whoever they are, whether it's China or whether it's Saudi Arabia, or whether it's Iran or Iraq, whether it's in the United States, Heavenly Father. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in their lives, as was said this morning. Uh, we can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Work in their lives to enable them to live the life, Heavenly Father, that's going to attract people to ask the question, what is the hope in you? Be with Pastor Farrell as he preaches in the next session, Heavenly Father. We look forward to that. Thank you, God for being a great God, a wonderful God. And Heavenly Father, even this time this morning, I pray, would bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.